All right, hello everybody. So today, whether you're online or you are here right now at, at our Legacy Campus, uh, where we uh, film our online service and also do church for those of us who are here on Friday night, um, we, there's a lot to celebrate and the, around here. And one of those things to celebrate is you, uh, because you're here. And we're really thankful that you're here. And, and that's true for everybody, but certainly for those of you who are brand new to Chase Oaks, just let you know, we're really excited about you being here because we were, I mean, we were okay, you know, but now that you're here, we're like way better. Like our coal factor just went way up because you're here. So thank you for being here. And we hope you'll take next steps in your journey and we want to help make that happen. And we also want to celebrate. This is something that happened this past week. And we have a Chinese, a Mandarin-speaking campus. And last week they did a worship night. And let me tell you what happened. They'll show you what happened. 1,600 people in our community who are Mandarin-speaking uh, came. People came to know Jesus. Uh, they, it was just incredible. And so please be praying uh, for that campus and our ability to impact uh, our community and uh, and just so cool. Another thing, of course, we're celebrating. We just, you know, baptisms this weekend at all of our campuses. And that's a huge thing to celebrate because it's people who say, hey, I want to follow Jesus and take the additional step to go public with that through baptism. And, as, and think about how amazing of a choice that is. That's a wonderful choice that should be celebrated. But what we're talking about today it's that even wonderful choices and even the best of decisions can attract criticism and ridicule and all that. As crazy as even with that, there are people who get baptized who will who will face ridicule and even criticism and haters because of be like, oh, OK, so now you think you're better than everybody or, you know, people will mess up and do something. And said, oh, I thought you were a Christian and, all, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you think, wow, even the even for doing the best of things in a world like this, you get kind of criticized for it. It's hard to avoid. Like if you really want to avoid criticism, here's what you do. Don't do anything. Don't say anything. Don't post anything. Don't initiate anything. Certainly don't lead anything. But then you know what will happen? You'll get criticized for not saying anything, doing anything, initiating anything, leading anything, posting, right? It, there's just no way to avoid it. I, I was thinking about that this past week because I was watching um, Eric's hadn't seen it yet. His message on perseverance. And it was so good. And in fact, it was so good. I always like when I watch our, our teaching team, we always watch and give each other input and evaluate each other and say, here's how it could be better. And I was I, I, I always want to come up with something and I couldn't come up with anything other than. That was an amazing talk. That was really great. I don't know how I could improve that talk. It was really great. But I was watching it and on, on YouTube. And, and I thought as I was watching it, you know, the little, the red thing that I, that I put in a square there, the thumbs up, thumbs down, just how it, it just invites people to give you thumbs up or thumbs down, right? And we were always evaluators and put ourselves in that. And, and I was fortunate he got no thumbs down. That was awesome because he certainly should not get any thumbs down for that message. 
He had 20 thumbs up. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back and watch that on YouTube. And let's make that like 2,000 thumbs up. Because that's what it should be. And, um, and, and it was a great message. And if you didn't watch it, make sure you go back and watch it. But we're, we're just in a world like that where people feel obligated to give the thumbs up or thumbs down to everything. And sometimes you get the thumbs up, which is always fun. Sometimes you get the thumbs down. Like I, I read about, uh, I read this, uh, a pastor was talking about um, just criticism when you put yourself out there, just even teaching like Eric did and put yourself on the platform. And he was saying one time he cut his face shaving. And so he had a Band-Aid on his face. And so he had to explain that. So he, you know, told the church at the beginning of the talk, he said, well, I was thinking about my sermon this morning and I, while shaving and I cut my face. And at the end of the service, somebody left an anonymous note that said, next time, think about your face and cut your sermon. And it was like, ouch, you know, like who felt obligated to do that? And why would you do that? Right. But but that's the world that we live in. And, you know, we're and, and so if you and I are going to do anything. If we're going to just walk with God and, and, and try to build a life with God, if we're going to build relationships like marriage or family or good friendships, if we're going to accomplish it, like the only way to do that, one of the skills we have to have is dealing with criticism and sometimes dealing with haters, sometimes dealing with constructive criticism, too, and how to do that. Because, you know, like Taylor Swift will tell us to shake it off, haters and all that, which sometimes often that is the right thing to do is to shake it off. But sometimes, and she would agree with this, sometimes you shouldn't shake it off. Sometimes you should actually listen to it because criticism can be a wonderful friend and correction can be as necessary. And so how do you know? Like, how do you know when to shake it off and how do you know when to absorb it and listen to it and make changes because of it? And, and how do we navigate criticism and even opposition and so today, that's what we're going to talk about as we're in this series called The Power of Everybody, which even includes our critics, and to say, okay, how do we navigate this? As we, we're in this, the, the series is built around an Old Testament book, the book of Nehemiah, that is about this huge project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and all. It's, it's this impossible project and everybody comes together and God helps them and they do it. It's an amazing story. And last week... Ryan did a great job introducing that. Watch that too and give the thumbs up, all right, on YouTube. And subscribe and all that while you're at it. Why not? But he was, uh, anyway, so he talked about how, um, you know, Nehemiah was, the story is a time when the nation of Judah, because Israel had split into two nations, long story, Israel and Judah after Solomon, and both of them got conquered by, uh, by Babylon and then Persia came, the Persian Empire, and conquered Babylon. And so the people of God had been conquered for a hundred years by either Babylon or Persia, now Persia. Nehemiah was, along with a lot, a lot, a lot of the nation of Israel, scattered throughout the empire, because that's what the Persians did, is they scattered you out through all the different sections of the empire. And Nehemiah was an official. He was the cupbearer to the king, the emperor Artaxerxes, which was a really high thing. It doesn't sound great, but it was like a big advisor, a really trusted thing. And so he's there serving Artaxerxes and he hears about the conditions back home for the people of God in Jerusalem. 
Because when Babylon came in and conquered Jerusalem, they tore down the walls. They just left it in rubble. And for the people of God who were still there, it was terrible because they had no protection. And every time they tried to get something going, enemies would come and and tear it all apart and take it away. And they were constantly bullied and it was really bad. And so when he hears about it, Nehemiah hears about it, he knows he's got to do something. And so he prays about it and approaches Artaxerxes and prays a lot because Artaxerxes was not a warm and fuzzy guy. And he says, hey, I, I want you to relieve me of this job so that I can go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And by the way, I really need you to pay for it and, uh, and protect it and make it happen. And, he, and God gives him favor. Artaxerxes says, you go, you do it. And so he goes with all this stuff and talks to people of God who are there, even though they're discouraged. He pumps them up and says, hey, I know this is a big job, but God's going to help us. We can do this. And they get started. In 2.18, it says, the people replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. And at this point, everybody's excited. Like when you start something, isn't that exciting? Right? When you start something new or building the wall, is going to be great, you know. And everybody's going, whistle while you work. I would whistle, but I can't. I don't know how to whistle. Um, You'll have to teach me. But um, anyway, they get going. But right away, guess what happens when they get started? Criticism and opposition right away by the people of the other little nations and city states around them who are also subject to Artaxerxes and the Persian Empire. Verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Gershom the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And he doesn't feel obligated to explain it to him. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We as servants will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim to uh, any claim or historic right to it. It's interesting that's still going on, right? That kind of conversation and battle. But he's like, look, none of your business. And they get going. And they're not deterred. But the opposition and ridicule and criticism continue. As they get going, we read in chapter 4. When Sanballat heard that we were indeed rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Which is actually making fun of God. Because they're saying, okay, so you're offering sacrifices because you think your God's going to help you. There's no help for this. Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones of life uh, to life from these heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they're building, even if a fox climbed up on it, would break down their wall of stones. It's 2,500-year-old trash talk. And you know why they do it? Because they're threatened, but also because it's often effective. You know, you've heard probably the adage, you know, maybe uh, when you were in school and somebody made fun of you, maybe your grandmother or granddad said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? And that sounds good, but it's not true. Words hurt. Words are powerful. Proverbs 18 says that, that the power of life and death is in our words. Words have the power of life and words have the power of death. 
Words that people can say can bring life to a relationship, life to a group of people, life to your soul. But they can also bring death. They can crush you. And that's why we have to be so careful. We're told in the Bible to only use words that build up. Never words that tear down because words are so powerful. But I bet you could remember things that have been said to you that have torn you down and they're hard to get over. And I also bet you could, I hope you can remember words that have been said to you that gave you so much encouragement and so much life and so much perspective. And we just have to be so careful. Because once words are out there, they're out there. And so when and we've all made mistakes doing this, as I was preparing this message, I thought of a couple things I've said to Christy, my wife, over the years, or even to my kids at times. And you think, oh, why did I say that? And, you, and it felt good at the time because you're angry, you're mad, you're hurt. And, and you should apologize and you should try to do all you can to say, I'm so sorry. That is not true. That's so evil of me. It's just terrible. Right? We, we really do. That helps. But still, it can't undo everything, right? So let's just be really, really careful. Well, in this case, I'm sure it wounded. I'm sure it was significant, but they keep going. Um, So much so uh, that as they keep going, they get to an incredible milestone in verse 6. It says, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked with all their heart. Now, this was just in a few weeks. They built it to half the wall height, which was already really high. That would already protect them from wild animals and different things. I mean, that was a big milestone to get. And you think every, and and the people were celebrating it, but guess who was not celebrating it? The haters and the critics. And so the very next verse, but when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Now they are moving to sticks and stones. Now, it's hard to understand for us, just when we read this, how intimidating this would have been for the wall builders. Because we just read it and like Ammonites, Horonites, you know, whatever. You know, I just, all these knights, I don't even know what that, you know, lots of ites. But... But what this would have been, all of these were little more nations and city-states that were all more powerful than the people of God at the time, than Israel at the time, because they had more people, they had real weapons, they had real armies, they had fortified cities, they had, I mean, they had it going on. And even if just one of these nations had opposed Israel, it would be intimidating. But when you look at the map at that time, all these people, it's everybody surrounding them. Everybody was against them. And it would have been incredibly intimidating. And so, and, and you can tell this time it, it hit the mark. They, they handled the words pretty well, but now threat of violence was, it, well, it hit the mark. It was discouraging. We read in verse 10, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving up. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. They're tired. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see it, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. And then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they'll attack us. They're discouraged and they want to quit. And in any good endeavor, you're going to face a time 
or multiple times where you're going to want to quit. Even if you know it's the right thing to do and you believe God's in it, you're going to want to quit. Even in your own spiritual life, there's going to be times you want to, you've committed to follow Jesus like these people in baptism. Like you've, I want to follow Jesus and I want to grow in my faith and I want to, you know, I, I want to serve him. And, I, and, and there's going to come a time or multiple times where it's going to get difficult and it's going to get confusing. And you're not going to understand why certain things are happening or not happening. And you're going to want to give up. There are times in a relationship like marriage, certainly, where it starts out great, but then you realize they're not as perfect as you thought. And it's going to get hard. And somebody's going to, you know, disappoint you or whatever. Or in business or a career or whatever, you know the right thing to do, but it's going to get hard to do it. And you're just going to want to give in or give up. And and, and all kinds of, like... And as a church, same thing, right? There are things that we're going to do. Any good endeavor is going to have times like that, that you have to push through it. Like, like that great sermon on YouTube that we're going to give the thumbs up, persevere. Uh, Eric's sermon, that you have to persevere. And they do. And, and they pray. And Nehemiah says, okay, God, we need you because we can't do that. Like, we want to give up. We need you. In fact, in chapter 6, Nehemiah even says to the people, should I just run away? Like, should I just go back to Persia? Because he had a very comfortable life in Persia, in the capital. Should I just run away? And he says, there's no way I'm going to run away. Because God's in this. We're going to do this. And they post guards and they have this system where if somebody harasses them in one part of the wall, they can send people over there to protect them. And, and, and that's enough to kind of disincentivize their enemies. And so we read. In, verse, in chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul, which is September, middle September, in 52 days. Now, we hear that and kind of yawn. Eh, okay, Elul, 52 days, whatever. This is, like, it was impossible to rebuild that wall in 552 days. But they built it in 52 days because God helped them. And, and we're going to talk about this next week. How the power of everybody and how much can be accomplished when we gather together, empowered by God to do something significant. Don't miss next week. But when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized this work had been done with the help of our God. They're like, hey, this, their God is not just a rock or an idol. Like, he's for real. And we're going to chill out. We don't want anything to do with, you know, getting on the wrong side of him. What I want to focus on this week is the criticism part. Because one of the things that Nehemiah had to do was help people get past criticism. And there are other times in the book where he is criticized and you know what he does then? He listens to it. And he absorbs it and he makes changes. So the ones we read are his enemies that he, he just lets, he does the Taylor Swift shake it off thing, but other times he doesn't shake it off. So how do we know? How do we know when to shake it off and how do we know when to, you know, let, listen to it and make adjustments to it and consider it? And that's what we want to talk about as we think back through the story. So what we're going to do is we're going to build kind of a filter. So some of you are facing ridicule or criticism or opposition right now. And it's just front of mind. Some of you have experienced that in the past. If you haven't experienced in the past or you're not experiencing in the present, guess what? You're going to experience in the future. So perk up. 
So uh, we're going to just build a little filter of criticism that comes our way. Because, uh, and please understand, not all criticism is bad. In fact, Proverbs 12.1 is very blunt. It says, he who hates correction is stupid. <laughs> You're like, God, what do you really think? Like, uh, you know, but he who hates correction is stupid. Because correct, we all need correction because we're imperfect and we don't know everything. So we need people to bring words of correction. We need feedback. All of us do. And people are just foolish not to know that. But how do we consider it? And so here's the filter. The first part of the filter, first stage is this. Consider the target of the criticism. Meaning, just think about, well, like, what are they actually criticizing? Are they criticizing my direction in life? Let's say to be a Jesus follower or whatever. Are they, are, are they criticizing how I'm doing it? Or are they criticizing the mission or are they criticizing the methodology? That's a really important distinction. In fact, for, I think that's why Nehemiah was able to so easily blow off the criticism and opposition from their enemies. Because he knew that God wanted them to rebuild the wall. And what they were criticizing was rebuilding the wall. And so like one time they want to talk to him because they're upset and, and they say, hey, we just want to talk to you about this because we don't like what's going on. And here's what he says in 6.3. He says, I'm carrying on a great project. He sends a message. He doesn't show up in person. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop? Will I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. Talk to the hand because I'm not stopping. You, you, because they weren't, that what they were questioning was God's, what, what God had wanted them to do. He's like, so if this is what God wants me to do, you, we can, we can talk about how, like if, like if it's the mission, okay. You know, we're, I'm going to blow that off. But if somebody's questioning how you're going about it, the methodology, well, that's probably something worth listening to. Okay, we can listen to that. And so consider, okay, what is the target? Let's think about that for a little bit. Like as a church. So as a church, I, I am not the head of this church, okay? And you can say amen. Now that's a good thing. Jesus is the head of this church. It's his church. And so when he gave birth to the church, we're just one of many. When he gave birth to the church, before there was the church, there was the mission. He gives the mission to the church. And what's the mission? To spread the good news of how people can come to know God through faith in Jesus and have a relationship with him to those who do not know about that and to be the good news in a broken world, being his hands and feet, bringing redemption and peace and justice and all of that in a broken world. We're, that's our mission. And what that means is as a church, it is an external mission, meaning it's not about us. When you become a Jesus follower, you just you just said yes to a mission that says it is not about me, even though I'm going to grow and I'm going to know God and God's going to change my life. But he'll do that in the context of a mission that's all about others, those who have yet to hear, those who have yet to know. And so therefore, church is designed by God, not my idea, it's Jesus idea, not to be internally focused on us but to be externally focused on people who aren't here yet. And that's hard to maintain because our sin nature is always to build my life around me and yours is to build your life around you and for a church to build a life around itself. And it just makes sense, right? I mean, you know, if you're going to do church, let's do church for church people because guess what? Church people pay the bills and we want to keep them happy. So let's keep church people happy and 
And that's, from Jesus' perspective, I believe that's gross. I believe it makes him want to throw up in his mouth a little bit. It just, because that's not the mission. That's not his heartbeat. His mission is for, for those who have yet to, to know and to hear. That's the whole point. That's why, otherwise he just zip us up to heaven. But he hasn't. Because we're here with that external mission. I mean, it's interesting. And so, the, so it's so important to us as a church because it's always working on us too. That rubber band to an internally focused church isn't just working on other churches. It's working on Chase Oaks Church all the time. And so we always have to just fight that and say, God, help us have your heart and help us focus on your mission and not allow that to happen, to stay externally focused and, and to remember our mission. And so that's important to us for everything that we do, including how we do what we're doing right now, how we do a worship service. When I prepare messages, I think about everybody from those who are skeptical, don't know God, not even sure they are interested, to a longtime believer like me and people beyond me and everything in between. Right. So I care about all of it. And I think all of us can benefit from everything we're talking about. But the way we do church, because the only there's one passage in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 14, that talks about how to do a church, church service. There's almost no direction in the Bible of how to do a church service. But the most clear direction we have in 1 Corinthians 14 is what they were doing in Corinth is they were doing things as a church. that was really meaningful for them. They loved it, but it freaked outsiders out. And the word, the two words are used, outsiders and seekers who were coming in. And Paul says, stop it. You're doing church for you in a way that's not connecting to outsiders and seekers and stop it. Why? Because God's heart is not just for us. It's for those who are coming, who have yet to hear. And so, and, and here's why I'm saying this. Sometimes it, it is crazy making to me, but we'll get criticized. And this happens all the time. We get criticized as a church for that commitment. And people will even use it as a slur. And maybe you've heard it. They'll say, oh yeah, Chase Oaks Church. That's one of those seeker churches. As it, and, it, and it sort of sounds like that's one of those Satan churches. But that's not the same thing. Because the one thing we're told is do church in a way where seekers and outsiders can connect. And Jesus' heart is what? He said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. That's why we're here. That's his heart. If you know the story of the prodigal son, you have the older son and the prodigal and the older son won't even go to the party. And the, and the father says, don't you understand? This is a party for prodigals. And we're here because of the heart of the father. And so if you hear somebody say, well, you know, it's a secret church just say, yeah, you bet we are because that's the heart of God. And we don't just care about seekers, right? We want believers to grow in the faith and grow, but in the context of mission. And so when people criticize us for that, you know what we should do? Shake it off. Because that's, that's just criticizing the mission. And it's Jesus' mission. Now, if people criticize how we do that and how we could do it better, you know what we should do? Not shake it off. We should listen to every bit of it. doesn't mean they're necessarily, they could be right or wrong, but we sure better listen. Man, I want to do it. There's so many things we could do better. Let's, let's learn all of it. Same thing with you and me as individuals, as Jesus followers. As we follow Jesus and you take steps of obedience and let's, and, and let's say you, you know, you've been a party person or whatever and now you're not doing what you used to do and you may get people who misunderstand and be like, man, you're no fun anymore. You know, why are you like that and all that? And they criticize your direction or maybe the way you deal with your sexuality and now say, I'm going to follow what Jesus says or your finances or whatever in life. There will be people who won't get it. 
And they may criticize you for that. And if they criticize you for that, you know what you do? Your answer is shake it off. You know what you do? Shake it off. But if they're criticizing how you're doing that, listen to it. Consider it. They may have something to say that you need to hear. So what, are, what is the target of the criticism? Is it the mission or the methods? Is it the direction or how you're going about it? And something may get through the filter. And, and then the next part of the filter is consider the source of criticism. Because not every critic is equal. All people are equal in the eyes of God. All critics are not equal in terms of the criticism they have to share. It doesn't, they could still be right or wrong, but consider the source. And in the Bible, it's really interesting. There's, there's three kinds of critics. And, and I, and, and it's, this is, you can see this in the Bible, but I get this from a guy, the one he pointed out to me, it was a guy named Henry Cloud. He's written a lot of books and he's a smart guy, read his books. But three groups of people, wise people, foolish people, and evil people. And, cons- and consider the source. Let's talk about wise people. In Ecclesiastes, uh, we read, Better to be criticized by a wise person than praised by a fool. Being criticized by a wise person is not a bad thing. That's a really good thing. It's a gift. Feedback is a gift. And if we're smart, we'll seek it out and we'll listen to it, especially from wise people. Um, I just talked to a friend of mine, Conway, on the way here. And I was sharing an idea. I said, Conway, I need you to poke every hole you can in it. And when we talk next week, I want to hear, I, I just want you to blow it out of the water, this idea. And it's an idea I really like and I really care about. But that's, I just really need you to blow it out. Because wise people are helpful, right? Wise people uh, in the Bible are people who respond to light when they see it. They adjust to God's wisdom. They are people who are humble themselves. They're teachable themselves. They're people who, they're not perfect. They make mistakes. When they make mistakes, they learn from it. Those are wise people. But then, another group is foolish people. Fools. Now, that's not my word. That's Proverbs' word, okay? And, you know, don't get mad at me. Don't criticize me, because I'll just shake it off <laughs> on this one. But Proverbs 14, 7 says, Stay away from a foolish man, for you will not find knowledge on his lips. Proverbs 27, uh, 23, 9. Do not speak to a fool, for he will scorn the wisdom of your words. Meaning, don't waste your words on these people. Proverbs 26, 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him yourself. Meaning, it'll just make you crazy and foolish like him or her. Because you know why? Have you ever tried to reason with an unreasonable person? And you, and you find yourself, you know, trying to do this, and you realize... They're not reasonable. And it is just wasting your time to reason with a person who is not reasonable. And that's what Solomon is saying. And a foolish person is the opposite of wise. Foolish people don't respond to light. They don't bend to God's wisdom. They don't bend to God's better way. They don't learn from their mistakes. They're not teachable. They're not humble. They don't have your best interests at heart. And for a fool, it doesn't mean they're always wrong. But it just means you're probably more likely to kind of shake off what they say versus a wise person. And then the last group are evil people, which actually comes from a passage in the Bible, that phrase in some translation, evil people. It is a little harsh. The truth is all of us, because as humans are part evil and, and part good, we're, we're, de- we're, we're made in the image of God and have this dignity. At the same time, we're sinful and depraved and we've got both of it. All of us can be, you know, right. But, but what, so maybe a better word here is unsafe people. 
Or people who are out to get you. Harmful people. And with people who are harmful and safe, often they've been wounded themselves and they are out, they're threatened by you and they're out to get you. And they use words very dangerously and it can be super harmful. And what do you do with those people? You put boundaries around yourself a little bit. You get protective. Um, Here's what Paul says about such people in the church. He says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Other than that, he's pretty great, but... Right, but warped and sinful. It, as some translations say, evil. That's where that comes from. But like some, there are some people who can cause so much harm in a church by being divisive and being critical in the wrong way and all that that you just have to put a boundary around them so they don't do any more damage. But that's also true, maybe in your family. It's also true in your life. It doesn't mean you don't love even our enemies. We love and people who. Hurl insults at us. Jesus said, we just bless them and all that. It doesn't mean that we get mean. It doesn't mean that we get manipulative and all that. It just means sometimes you have to sort of put some boundaries around yourself and say, you know, we may not ever spend one-on-one time together. We may have to have some buffers. We may, if you start going down this road, then that's probably the end of that, you know, time together and all that. And, uh, and sometimes you have to get protective. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie, The Joy Luck Club. It was a while back. But it's a movie about this a lady who, when she was eight years old, became a national chess champion. And the way her mind worked, she was a savant. The way her mind worked is she could just see the chessboard in every move. And it just, and it, she was unbelievable. But all that got derailed because of a mom that was one of these unsafe people. And she was threatened and at the same time using her girl for money and, and all this. And it was a really bad situation. And at one point, that little eight-year-old talks back to her mom, really just sticks up for herself. And the mom looks at her and says, you are nothing. You've always been nothing. And you hear something like that from your mom. And here's what she, reflecting back, here's what she said later. What she said to me was like a curse. This power I had this belief in what I'd been given, I could actually feel it draining away. I could feel myself becoming so ordinary and all the secrets that I once saw, I couldn't see anymore. All I could see were my mistakes and my weaknesses and the best part of me disappeared. And some of you have been by unsafe people, evil people, things have been said to you or they've said things to you that are hard to shake. And and let me encourage you to listen to what God says about you. He says you're his beloved. Um, He loves you. He values you. Uh, And and you're not who you, what some people have said you are. But sometimes we have to, we need some help to protect ourselves from people like that. So you consider the source. Are they a wise person? Well, I'm going to listen. It doesn't mean they're automatically right, but I'm sure you're going to listen. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of mis- there's a lot of stupid things I would have done without wise people in terms of leading this church. Because I'm just one leader of leaders. We have an executive team. We have an elder board. I'm one of those board members. I, I don't call all the shots. And again, you should say amen. 
Hallelujah. Because if it was just about me, I'd make, you know, I'd make mistakes. Even the name of our church would have been really stupid. And I can't share the name because some churches have the name and I shouldn't say it like that. But, but I really wanted it. I thought it was awesome. And they were like, hey, why don't we, why don't we do some focus groups and all that with people who are trying to reach? And that, all those focus groups hated it. And I'm so glad we have the name that we do. But, you know, so wise people you listen to, foolish people. It doesn't mean they're always wrong, but you just consider, well, these are, maybe I can't listen to them the same way. And then we've just talked about unsafe people. And then the last part of the filter is you take it to God. And that's what Nehemiah does. He takes criticism to God. And there's sometimes there's other criticism that he listens to and absorbs and changes his approach. Because wise people do that. Unwise people hate correction. Wise people say, man, okay, I need to consider it. Thank you. And uh, especially from wise people. And so you take it to God and say, God, what what do I need to do with this? And I I think also take it to other wise people. If you have wise people in your life or seek them out and say, hey, you know, how do I deal with this criticism? And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do that right now. Um, Some of you uh, in your past have faced criticism. Some of you in your, you know, right now, uh, you know, there's some criticism or opposition or whatever going on. And let's take it to God and and just think through the little filter and just go through this. Okay. And, and again, if you're not experiencing that, you need to be really thankful and happy and just know it's going to come. So let's bow our heads together before God. And as you think about what somebody has said or is saying or criticism or feedback or whatever. Let's just take it to God real quick and just say, okay, God, help me think through this filter. The first thing is, God, what, what is the target of the criticism? Like, are they, are they criticizing the direction? And, and if it's a direction you want me to go, then God, help me shake it off. But if they're criticizing how I'm getting there or my methodology or whatever, then I probably need to at least consider that. And so God, help me consider it. What, what, what do I need to take with me here? And then consider the source. Is this a wise person, a foolish person, or an unsafe, evil person? And then, I mean, God is here and say, okay, God, it, now I'm going to bring it to you. And I want you to speak wisdom to my soul. And God, you speak into my heart and conscience and and, uh, and, and what I, I, I know I don't do anything perfectly, so God, would you speak correction into my heart and soul and in my relationships, in my life, in my career, in my church, in my whatever it is, God, you speak correction even right now by your spirit, just into my spirit. And then give me the wisdom to make whatever adjustments to, that I can make because correction is a wonderful thing when it's right and good and well-intended. And so, God, would you speak that? Father, I thank you. Uh, You use imperfect people like us who make all kinds of mistakes for the most important mission in the history of the universe. And you just love doing that. And so, Father, I thank you for your patience with us. And I pray that you'd help us to just keep getting better. And keep following you more closely, keep loving people more deeply, and walking with you in a way that aligns with your will more fully. And whatever you're speaking into it, God, would you give us, would you empower us the way you did Nehemiah and all those people to do the impossible? Would you empower us to walk with you? In Jesus' name.
Amen.